We often joke on this show that I know roughly 50% of all knowledge in existence. That may or may not be slightly hyperbolic, but I admit there may be a couple of areas and disciplines where I only know 49%. For example, you might be shocked to learn I'm not the world's foremost authority on the history of the Soviet Union. You can blame the American educational system if you want to, I often do. Or you can blame me for being too lazy and lacking in intellectual curiosity to study it on my own. But how many of us take extra time out of our day to brush up on Stalinist Russia? My particular friend and friend of the podcast, Dave, reads first-hand accounts of surviving the gulag for fun in his spare time. But I feel like he might be an outlier. Now, when I was growing up, I listened to a lot of Irish folk music. And I know you're thinking, Liam, that's a pretty fucking weird transition. We were talking about your limited knowledge of Soviet history. Well, it's relevant because on a live album I listen to frequently, Liam Clancy and Tommy Makem performed a fun little song about a roving ne'er-do-well who still goes to Mass on Sunday to pray for his father who has communist sympathies. The song is called My Father Loves Nikita Khrushchev, and it was the first time in my life I'd ever heard of Nikita Khrushchev. Now, the second time I crossed paths with Nikita Khrushchev was seeing him briefly depicted in The Missiles of October, an astonishingly good early 70s made-for-TV movie about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then the third time I came across Nikita Khrushchev was in today's film, where I learned he talked like a firefighter from New York. Nothing in my previous encounters prepared me to see him portrayed as the presumptive protagonist in a comedy about Soviet power grabbing. Unfamiliar as I was with Khrushchev, at least I'd heard of him before. This movie is absolutely lousy with pivotal historical figures that I have never heard of or read about in my goddamn life. I mean, I know Stalin. Everybody knows Stalin. But that's about it. It's a veritable who's who of major players, some of whom are downright frightening, and unless you seek them out, you'd never even know they existed. The point being, I left this movie feeling like I maybe knew 51% of everything now. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So come along with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director as we take a crash course in Soviet history and a masterclass in playing politics for laughs, discussing Armando Iannucci's morbidly hilarious historical farce, The Death of Stalin. Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. Today we're here to talk about the death of Stalin from director Armando Yanucci. I'll just throw that out at the beginning so everyone knows how to say it. From 2017. Can you say it again for me? Armando Yanucci. You gotta yes. you gotta put all the fingers together, point them up, and then kind of just shake your wrist that, like your that wrist that wrist motion. Exactly. And then if it's like if you put both your hands together, you're like that's more of like a what the fuck are you doing sort of gesture, but Oh really? I I thought so that's what the fuck? So generally, oh man, I'm gonna have to cut this out because nobody can see this, but um <laughs> it's guys, you know the Italian fingers. Like this is what he's doing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it literally, there's an emoji of it. So the f- most common use for the Italian 
put all your fingers in a point and then shake your wrist is a what the fuck gesture. Now, like most Italian hand gestures, it's versatile and so it can be used in different settings, but that's most of it. And then if someone is really being ridiculous and saying something completely unbelievable or you're really challenging like someone's whatever, then you put both hands together and like instead of the wrist, you actually like move at the elbow and move your whole hands up and down. And that's when you're really what the fuck. My name is Dan and I'm here with my partners. Katie. And Liam. And Katie's here to tell us all about this film. Armando Iannucci is best known these days for creating the HBO show Veep. But in 2016, he turned his sharp comedic skills to long past history rather than current events. The death of Stalin is blacker than midnight political satire of just before and the few days after Stalin's abrupt death of a stroke. The major Soviet politicians at the time, and Stalin's children, come together to panic, scheme, plot, backstab, and even occasionally mourn the loss of the towering and terrifying figure. And while there is a lot of history, and some fabrication, embedded in this story, none of that is necessary to know to enjoy the film. With a tiny budget of $13 million, the death of Stalin was not much of a box office success, only pilling in $24 million at the end of its run but that is likely due to the very limited release it was given. Critically, it was considered a darling in the West, with everyone lavishing praises on the performance, particularly Steve Buscemi's calculating yet somehow likable Khrushchev. Yanucci managed to walk the fine line of satire and political commentary while also centering his story in an absurdist Soviet Union that is difficult for modern viewers to distinguish from what the Soviet Union was actually like during that time. It balances making a ton of deep references to individuals and situations, while also entertaining those unaware of the events. Yanucci is British and much loved within their comedic community, meaning while the film didn't see any traction outside of the UK, it scored two BAFTA nominations and 13 British Independent Film nominations and four wins. When I first saw this film, I wasn't very aware of the historical situations it depicts, and not much has changed about that since then. But I still thoroughly enjoy every minute of it. Did you guys go into this having a lot of knowledge about this time period, or were you fairly ignorant like me? I saw this movie when it came out in theaters. I was actually I was actually on a business trip in Miami and had nothing to do over the weekend. And it was hot, and I don't take too kindly to that kind of nonsense. So I found a movie theater, and I went and I spent my entire weekend at the movies. I saw Isle of Dogs at the same very lavish Miami, like bring your ceviche to you in your seat, kind of frou-frou movie theater with the reclining seats and everything. And I saw Death of Stalin. I had a reasonable familiarity with some of the, some of the history. I'd say like, I guess a, a pedestrian amount of knowledge of the the history. Like I knew the names of, you know, Trotsky, Lenin, Marx, Stalin, Khrushchev, Khrushchev, uh, sorry, <laughs> Khrushchev. We're going to butcher his name, folks. I, I am Khrushchev, Nikita. Well, at least if, if you're going to pronounce it like you want to, you should do a Kennedy accent. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do a Boston. I can't do upper crust Boston at all. The, you know, Brezhnev, like I knew the names, but I don't know a lot of the details of the history. So I was absolutely fascinated by this movie, 
especially when uh, my friend and friend of the podcast, Dave, Dave! told me, like he, he lavished it with his praise. He said, you know, they're playing it for laughs, but that's exactly what all these insane fuckers were like. Like uh, things that cracked me up about it is how like, even after he was dead, they were still afraid to say something insulting about him and still trying to get each other in trouble with somebody who was now dead. Like it was that level of, of, uh, sycophantic and it was just absolutely hysterical to me, but also really fascinating. And that like, it really captured apparently the dynamic that existed around Stalin and his circle at that time. Yes. Same. My World War II history knowledge is less focused on the Eastern Front and on Russia. However, having read quite a bit about World War One, you inevitably read about the Russian Revolution and and some of the kind of more famous points of that and characters like uh, Rasputin and the Tsar and their very sick son, famously. So yeah, but in terms of the post-World War II dynamic of Soviet Russia, I had, or the Soviet Union, I'd mostly, my context was the Cold War and, and, and the Cuban Missile Crisis, like that stuff I've watched documentaries about and kind of more related to Eisenhower and JFK's administrations, etc. Um, so it was interesting to dig into these characters and the dynamics post Stalin's death. So we're in 1953 here is when Stalin died. And yeah, I agree with you. It's the idea of taking these sort of real and dark facts and trying to make a dark comedy out of it is a great idea. And I think, you know, dark humor is a super popular thing. So I feel like there was no field more ripe for this type of treatment. This is my second viewing. I saw it when it came out on Netflix and to be honest, I think I was a little bit unimpressed coming from Veep because I was so used to Veep being like a laugh a minute factory. And I think those characters are just so well written and hilarious from Julia Louis-Dreyfus to Tony Hale. Uh, just really, really good and, and like fast paced and hard hitting the whole time. This I felt like I was missing half the cultural references. And so I think it's true what Katie said that. He was making a film both for people who knew the era and the politics of the time in, in the Soviet Union and for people who really hadn't been introduced to any of it. But I think the latter viewer is going to be a little less engaged. And that was kind of me the first time around. This time, after having read a lot of the historical research, which, by the way, let me take a second to thank Ali Pitts very much from the Russell Files Unite podcast. He talks a lot about Russian film on his podcast. Um, so go check that out if you're interested. And he did a great write-up on this, as well as Micah, whose last name I can never pronounce, but he's our Army Infantry uh, officer who's studied a lot of history and did a great write-up for World War One. And our good friend Dave, who wrote in as well, this being one of his favorite uh, periods and things to talk about. Indeed. So, like I, well, I said there was a lot of really positive engagement in the West. This was definitely met with very different mind in Russia. 
to this day, the movie is still banned. Although it's estimated that it's received about one and a half million downloads over torrent files, which are also (laughs) huge in Russia. A lot of the complaints were, you know, it makes Russia look bad. And that's understandable from that regime's viewpoint. But there are other criticisms that were levied at it by less biased perspectives were that the it's not totally spot on it it fudges a lot of the facts and like for instance the opening scene with uh, the pianist it wasn't actually that lady who did it that incident is very apocryphal and no one knows if it actually happened but it's been detailed in a couple stories who exactly was doing what who is in power over what particular thing is very uh, loose in this movie. So is there reason to think that he did get this note and had a stroke after reading the note? Is that, do we know anything about that or is that just for the movie? That was for the movie. There was nothing I could find that, that showed that, but I, I highly doubt that's something that, you know, the Soviet forces and the Soviet leadership at the time would ever have allowed to get out. Right. What I've read is just that Stalin had a stroke after a night of drinking. They definitely did not call a doctor right away for reasons that we'll get into. And he died, I think, within 12 hours. So the manner of his death is accurate. The sort of catalyst for it, we're we're not sure. I think that was more dramatic license. Right. But I think... I think for me, the purpose of all of this, like it, the film really sets up the Soviet Union that it sets up is really illustrated in that opening scene with the with the concert. And, you know, Stalin is listening to it and then he calls them and he's like, send it. I want a copy of this. And it has um, one of my personal favorite quotes from the movie. And I think for me, it's the line that really emphasizes what society was like then because it was a a lot of discord and problems to simplify things extremely but the director of the theater comes out and says don't worry nobody's gonna get killed i promise you this is just a musical emergency and (laughs) it's hilarious but there's also this point where nobody laughs in the room and they're all kind of like looking at each other with this sense of like oh shit that that he means that like this is a legitimate (laughs) comforting statement for these people and then you begin to wonder but is that true could these like how far into the absurd are we with this and i think that's where the film really excels is it might not be playing straight to life but it is trying to give viewers a sense of what people were feeling at the time and what the political atmosphere was like So before we get into talking about the history and all these different characters, I just want to do a quick breakdown to refresh everyone's memory, or if you don't know about this period. We have Yosef Stalin, at least at the beginning here. Uncle Joe. General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Republic. That title he held from 1922 to 1952. He's also the chairman of the Council of Ministers from 41 to 53. So there's a little bit of overlap there. This is the title Nikita Khrushchev had afterwards, played by Steve Buscemi. 
He was also first secretary of the Communist Party of the USSR, 53 to 64, and chairman of the councils of ministers later in 58 to 64. Beria, Lavrenti Beria, played by Simon Russell Beale, was the chief of security, head of security services, head of the NKVD, which is like the Russian secret police, essentially, or at least that's one of the names they went through in several decades of different iterations. He was only that until 1946, and the film portrays him as being the current head of it. But again, I'm not going to get into pedantry of the years and stuff, because he had been the leader of that organization or the head of it for long enough and still had a lot of influence over the secret police. So how they portray him in the film makes sense, and I don't think we need to nitpick the years there. Svetlana Aliloyeva, who was Stalin's daughter, not shown in the film, she defected to the U.S. in 67 and became a U.S. citizen. Jeffrey Tambor plays, I don't know if this is Georgie or Georgie. Georgie. They call him Georgie. Yeah. <laughs> Georgi Malenkov is played by Jeffrey Tambor. He briefly succeeded Stalin after his death, but then removed from first secretary position in 55 and then later from the Presidium in 57. So he kind of didn't have what it took to hold on to power, but he briefly succeeded Stalin. Uh, the pianist whose story is disputed, Maria Udina is the pianist played by Olga Kurylenko. We have Molotov, of course. Uh, I don't even know how to say his first name. Vyacheslav. Man, these Russian names are awesome. Vyacheslav Molotov, played by Sir Michael Palin of Monty Python fame. I think he represents sort of the last of the old Bolsheviks who led the first Russian revolution against the Tsar, etc. And then were subsequently mostly killed in the purge. Stalin got rid of those old revolutionaries, either by exile or assassination or the gulags or all of the above. Now, is he the one who the cocktail is named for? Or is that a different Molotov? You know, that's a really good question. And I also wondered that. So maybe Jeff, who does Danger Close Armory, can come through and tell us about the story behind the Molotov cocktail and where that was invented, even though there isn't a Molotov cocktail used. It, it absolutely was. It was coined by the Finns during the Winter War. Interesting. So you got to wonder why. The name was a pejorative reference to Vyacheslav Molotov, who was one of the architects of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, signed in August 1939. So it was kind of like burning him in effigy? It was meant to be insulting from the Finns. Molotov was Minister of Foreign Affairs from 53 to 56. And then, of course, the very charismatic Jason Isaacs plays Field Marshal Zhukov, who had lots of titles. He was the commander-in-chief of the Soviet armies uh, during the war and pre-this time period, led Soviet forces in Leningrad, Stalingrad, and eventually was demoted to Deputy Defense Minister, probably because, again, he did kind of speak his mind and somewhat challenge Stalin at times. But one of the differences between Hitler and Stalin was that Hitler regularly fired generals and took on more of that responsibility himself, which he was famously not very good at and resulted in a lot of tactical errors. Whereas even Hitler didn't really execute his generals when they screwed up, minus the 1944 plot assassination plot thing whereas Stalin it was a regular thing to ship his generals off to Siberia when they pissed him off or have them executed so 
It says a lot about Zhukov that he survived this long. That's a brief rundown of the cast and characters. I I also do have to call out the actor who plays like the the director of the symphony, not the conductor, but uh, Patty Considine. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. He is a British actor uh, who I first saw playing like a New York labor agitator in Cinderella Man with <laughs> Russell Crowe. Uh, so I was kind of surprised to find out when I saw him in Hot Fuzz as one of the Andes that he's actually British. And I love him in this. I love him in this role. But I also have to just mention that this is possibly my favorite use of the word myriad out in the wild. Oh, like wow. that you will ever see. It is spectacular uh, how he drops it because he he uses it correctly in a way that people don't normally think to use it he says for, for reasons which are myriad and complex. And I was like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. That's my guy right there. I that character immediately had me on board with him at that moment. It's a proper use of the word myriad in a rather creative context. And I, and I just had to say that I appreciated that. As opposed to Katie's recent use of it, which you did not appreciate. Oh, man. I did not appreciate <laughs> it. It was that. correct usage. It was not correct much. usage. Whatever. You can't have a 10,000 of anything. I'm sorry. Anyways, one of the things that works in Yanucci's favor when Katie mentions the absurd is sort of leaving the audience guessing as to whether something is done over the top and unrealistic because it's so hilariously unbelievable. Or whether it falls under the category of things that you run into every once in a while where something based on a true story, you'll see the writer or director make a comment like the true story or the the true facts of this particular thing were too unbelievable. So we toned it down for the film. And I think there are a few instances of that here, which are pretty hilarious. Again, some things are exaggerated, some things are spot on, and some things are toned down. For example, Jason Isaacs does a great job as Zhukov and I love him as a character he plays a bad guy often but he's just a he great does. actor he's got that hawk like nose that just and those piercing eyes like yes he, he feels very um, evil if he makes the right facial expression but I have heard because for those who don't know he plays Lucius Malfoy in the Harry Potter series mm -hmm. um, I have heard he is just the nicest sweetest guy to work with I'm sure. I'll bet. I'm sure. He looks like a blast to work with, especially in this. So one of the reasons why this is one of Dave's favorite movies is because Stalin's son, Vasily, who is insane and drunk all the time and always causing fights, the scene where Zhukov beats the shit out of Vasily, Dave said that was like watching young Dave get his ass kicked by current Dave and it just <laughs> filled his heart with joy. Apparently he was just as serious an alcoholic as portrayed and died at the age of 40 from it. So that part was true. But going back to uh, the depiction of Zhukov, they, he wears fewer medals than the real Zhukov. Like his chest That's is hilarious. just full of medals. And Unity was like, yeah, we toned it down because it was too unbelievable to have as many medals as Zhukov actually wore, which, you know, to be fair, he was a Soviet hero. And I think that while I would never agree with banning a film in a country, period, that's a very anti-American concept. Um, so I couldn't 
I couldn't agree with the Russian government on that side of things. If the criticism is some of these portrayals are disrespectful towards our World War II veterans who helped save the world in the 40s. Okay, I I can see a little bit of that, at least in terms of not liking the film or saying this is too exaggerated. I I also don't agree with them that they felt that Zhukov was portrayed as an idiot, which I don't think at any point he's portrayed in that way. Um, He's portrayed as very capable and very smart and pretty ruthless and someone who spoke his mind, which famously he did and was one of the few people that could get away with really giving Stalin a piece of his mind and not getting immediately shipped to the gulag he did get kind of downgraded in his roles later on but he was never killed in the purges or anything like that and got to retire so definitely a a force to be reckoned with and a very famous world war ii general who essentially was responsible for a lot of the strategic and tactical moves when when they beat germany on the eastern front and that was partially what their complaints were but i did want to let you know One of the people who so adamantly petitioned the Russian cultural ministry was Zhukov's daughter. Because she was disappointed with the portrayal of her father? I'm sure that was part of it. But their general argument was that it was um, an unfriendly act by the British intellectual class that is part of an anti-Russian information war. Like, they do make casual mention of what you're talking about, that it is denigrating to their World War II heroes. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's much more, it's uh, Death of Stalin is aimed at exciting hatred and enmity, violating the dignity of the Soviet people, promoting ethnic and social inferiority, which points to the movie's extremist nature. Wow. So Interesting. <laughs> they take it real past what... It kind of reminds me of their response to uh, Chernobyl. Oh, I can't even imagine. I don't remember the response. The, the response to Chernobyl, and I don't know if anything has come of this, but I understand that, like, their response to to the HBO miniseries Chernobyl was that they wanted to make, like, the rebuttal version of the same story. I thought where, that was in production last time I checked, actually. Yeah, like, I don't, that last time I heard about it, though, was, like, pre-COVID. So I don't know if that got derailed at all, but it's something that, like, they wanted to make their version of it where it was, like... I don't know, maybe an American saboteur was the cause or something where it wasn't the Soviet Union's fault that it happened. Oh, interesting. I don't know. Like, but they they were none too pleased with the portrayal of the Soviet Union in Chernobyl. Interesting. Yeah, if anybody hasn't seen that, I watched it a couple of times. That is an amazing show. I mean, some of the downsides of exposure to nuclear radiation are a little bit exaggerated for effect, but- Overall, and I've watched some breakdowns of it overall. They're like, it's pretty, it's like 80% accurate. So I, I, I definitely, yeah, I definitely recommend that. But yeah, the Russians don't like to be made to look bad. That's for sure. Not like us Americans. We don't sweep anything under the rug. Exactly. <laughs> Especially not the CIA or anything like that. <laughs> I wanted to ask you guys as, as a film critic and as a theater director specifically, How do you feel about the decision to specifically not use correct accents? Now, granted, this is a British production, so to us, everyone has some kind of British accent. If it had been American, it would sound a little more neutral to us. But I feel like those are very specific decisions. A a similar one could be seen in, let's say, conspiracy, 
which is about the meetings that the high Nazi officials had when they kind of decided on the final solution. All of that is done in English. And essentially, when you do that, you're asking the audience to use their imagination and pretend that everyone is not just speaking, obviously not speaking English with an accent, with a German accent, but actually speaking German. But they don't want to, which this was Yanucci's point, he didn't want to tax the actors and affect their improvisation by having them have to put energy into doing a Russian accent. And so he decided to forego it altogether so that the actors were more free to think and improvise, etc. And of course, your imagination is telling you that they're all speaking Russian in the film. And I remember reading that a Russian critic praised Yanucci for the decision because he felt that trying to imitate Russian accents would have probably gone poorly and affected the performances. What do, what do you guys think about that in general with country-specific period pieces? It depends on why you're doing it and who's acting, first of all. And Russian accents are particularly easy to sound... Like Yakov Shmirnov? Or uh, what, for those who love to watch old cartoons, uh, Natasha and... Boris. Boris, Boris and, and Natasha. Natasha. <laughs> yes, for the Rocky and Bowinkle. <laughs> the Rocky and Bullwinkle fans out there. And very recently before this, there was a movie called Red Sparrow, which is terrible, that came <clears> out <throat> hot garbage. And they do try to have everyone have Russian. You hate Jennifer Lawrence so much. I love Jennifer Lawrence, but I hate that movie. Well, now's a good time to plug our Patreon that we're releasing eventually, because I'm pretty sure that we did the good version of a female double agent with atomic blonde which is one of our yes. patreon episodes so yes. you guys will get to hear that there so red sparrow attempts to do it and it does like i reviewed it and saw it in theaters and the whole time i was like oh this is so bad and it's kind of like <laughs> why i think it works that in the marvel universe natasha romanov is played by scarlett johansson and she does never attempt a, a russian accent <laughs> and it's a good thing because it's like if you can't pull it off it just sounds hokey and i think in this it works especially well because it lends a universality to it mm. where like these are you, you can just get past the accent part of it and, and just react to their normal speaking voices and I think it works really well here. It doesn't always work, but for me, I thought that was the best choice for this movie because it's already working on so many levels and asking the audience to also parse it on this other level is just a lot of work and it doesn't help anything, I think. And I also think the examples you brought up, like these are two different examples. It's one thing to have a Russian character talking with English speaking native characters and whether you make the decision to use a Russian accent for that character or not, which I would say, if you can pull it off, that makes more sense. And I would say, like, yeah, if you get an actor who can do it, try, because that's just more realistic. But in this situation where the implication is not that they're speaking English with a Russian accent, it's that they're right. speaking Russian. I agree 100% that the, the – unless you're going to have this movie in Russian – which you're not going to do. There's no real reason to have them speaking in Russian accents. The one thing that I will say is that it, as much as I love him, Steve Buscemi being the only one who doesn't speak with a British accent was a little like weird 
No, he's not the only one. Jeffrey Tambor is is American. Okay, right. no, that's true. Okay, so Jeffrey Tambor, but like it's it was like Steve Buscemi and like a bunch of British dudes. His was the accent that sounded like the most because Jeffrey Tambor has kind of a weird speaking voice anyway. Is he from New York too? Yeah, he is. Um, I think he's from the Midwest. Yeah, he has like a a, a more neutral tone of voice, but also. Uh, I think just like the timber of his voice sounds like what he's saying is a little bit more important. San Francisco. He's a little, and he's just a little mumbly. Yeah. And it's, it's not as distinctive as, as Steve's voice. This is horseshit. Okay. I've been picking out funeral cushions with slim Hitler over there. Calico, this top of that. And you've done what? Well, that Brooklyn accent is very, very it's hard to shake. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. And it, and it does stick out an awful lot. Jeffrey Tambor plays a great Malenkov, but also the way his voice kind of cracks and is like, it plays off this uncertainty and this lack of confidence that it sounds like Malenkov had in real life. He's kind of chubby and like, there's a famous instance of someone. I want to say Photoshop, but obviously Photoshop didn't exist and neither did computers at the time. But someone like superimposed him into some altered. Yeah, altered a photo between I think it was uh, him, Stalin and Mao. And like he was in the room, but he was never like at that table, you know? Yes. Yes. He's very much channeling a little George Bluth in this, but like a really clueless George Bluth. There's always money in the banana stand. No touching. No touching. No touching. I just love when he's uh, like when he's talking to Slim Hitler. Yeah. Uh, and he's like cheekbones, not cheekbones. Cheekbones, not cheekbones. And he goes, "Take that one and destroy it." Destroy it. <laughs> yeah. Now this was uh, while we're on the topic of Jeffrey Tambor. I think I don't know if this is necessarily the case but one of the reasons why i feel like this didn't quite take off in america was this about the time that his onset conduct came into question i think that was a little bit after this i think that was more during the me too movement maybe a year later or something yeah because 2018 was i believe really the year for the me too because i was heavily involved in film criticism at that point yeah, and this rolled out really into American theaters in 2017, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah, it was it was 2018 in the theater, but I remember it not being long after I saw it. That Same time. In November 8th, 2017 was when he was accused of sexual misconduct. Yeah, and also like him yelling at Jessica Walters mm-hmm. and, and making her feel bad, which you shouldn't do. That is a crime against humanity to hurt Jessica Walters. So Jeffrey Tambor kind of sucks. As a person, he, he's not on like the, the Cosby Weinstein end of the spectrum, but still some some things were done. While we're on accents for another second, and I love that it's Jason Isaacs who did this, but I did notice his accent being pretty particular and not necessarily the same as the British accent he's done in other films. And I, of course, I don't know the difference between all the British accents because I'm a dumb American. It was much more working class. Right. So specifically, it was a Yorkshire accent. And when he was asked about it, he said, well, the bluntest people I know are Yorkshire men. 
And so I went with a Yorkshire accent because that made sense for Zhukov. And I'm like, man, that's great that he, for yep. a British audience that he's using this like specific regional accent to portray some attributes about the caricature of that character is just some next level acting. I fucking love that. And also his introduction where he like pops his cape off and they go to slow motion for like a second. Like, yes. oh, see, yeah. Ridley Scott could learn something for that. You want to talk about good use of slow motion. Planned slow-mo. That's some good-ass slow-mo. That wasn't like after the fact. Like, they knew they wanted that shot. That's a great shot. And well, because they did that with, I think, all of the introduction shots. Like, you'd have some banter, and then, like, they'd have the name come up. And when the name was up, it was always in slow-mo, which is really punched up by the uh, the two guys who come in late. Oh, Yeah. Is everyone here? <laughs> oh, right, because the voices are <laughs> I'm sorry. Like that one. But another thing I want, before we move on from the the accents and like your, your question about, you know, how it's used in movies, another movie that I'm sure we'll get to at some point that is one of the most creative and I feel like intelligent ways that this was handled was in the old, uh, the old film Judgment at Nuremberg. Oh. I want to see that so bad. I've heard so yep. many good things. So this is not really a, a spoiler of any kind, but what they do is they have in the courtroom, you have the American prosecutor and the American judges of the tribunal. And then you have all of the defendants are German and the prosecutor is German, not prosecutor. The, uh, the defense attorney is German. And so the prosecutor stands up and makes his case and they have, translators all over the room in their little booths with their headsets on Mm -hmm. and the lights that are basically signaling like when they're supposed to be translating and not. So it's, it's some old, old tech, I guess. But when the defense attorney stands up and begins speaking in German, and this is Maximilian shell in his Oscar winning role as the defense attorney, he gets up and he starts speaking in German and you hear the translator translating and the camera like kind of comes around into the translation booth with them. And then it pushes through like zooms in on him through the booth. And then he starts speaking in English. Ooh. So you get like the idea that he's really still speaking German, but it's being translated. But for you folks, he's just going to be speaking English now. That's excellent. And and I love not in a negative way, but holding the audience's hand in that way to really like sell sell them on buying what they're seeing. That's a great technique. It's purposeful. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. It's not a gimmick. It's like, it really has a purpose. It's meant to say, this is what we're doing here. And so there's no confusion. One last point before we move on from accents. One thing that's mentioned in the trivia is that, you know, the Soviet Union is geographically immense. And so there are hundreds of different accents in the Russian language and all these cabinet members often did have different accents. So for example, Stalin speaks with what sounds like an English working class accent. In real life, he was born in Georgia and learned Russian when he was eight or nine and always spoke Russian with a heavy Georgian accent. So to the average Russian or like the average citizen of Moscow, he sounded like a country person like a bumpkin of sorts he also you won't hear so hitler famously has taught you can there's tons of recordings until they pulled them all off of youtube and whatever move they're trying to make nowadays but while you can still get a hold of them you can hear hitler's voice and know what that sounds like there are not that many recordings of stalin's voice and it's because he kind of had a weird squeaky high-pitched voice which is 
weird when you picture this interesting like, i don't think he was super tall but you know he was an imposing figure for sure and had sent so many people to their death and he's got that big old mustache well when you paint him big on the side of a building like he looks huge and the stories about him are insane so yeah i wonder how that went off when he was actually giving speeches but i'll bet you he didn't give that many speeches to the public because of he was probably like a little king speechy about it yeah right which makes sense I didn't have time to get into this. Do either of you guys know anything about this award-winning French graphic novel that this is based on? No. No, I think it's fantastic that this was based on a graphic novel. Yeah, I'd love to read that. Anybody listening who has, please tell us about it. Why don't we move on to the titular event of the film, which is Stalin's actual death. We already talked about kind of how it's depicted, but I think one of these moments of kind of what's absurd versus what's real life is everyone being reluctant to go in the room and Stalin basically laying on the floor in a puddle of his own piss for like the whole night while he was arguably still alive. And literally the guards in real life probably had this conversation where it's like Stalin gave orders to not come into his room, especially when he was sleeping and wake him with the threat of death yeah and so these guys would have if they heard a big noise or him falling down they still would have been reluctant to interrupt because it's like okay if it's your ass on if it's your life on the line are you really going to go into the room and see what's going on so part of the reason probably that stalin died i don't know if had competent doctors which there weren't a lot of and we'll get to that in a minute too But whether getting to him sooner would have saved his life was kind of his own doing because he was so strict with the people around him and so vengeful that everyone was scared to even go in. And they were like, well, what if he's dead? And the guy's like, but we'll be killed for interrupting. It's like interrupting what? He's dead. I mean, they were banking on him being okay and it being nothing, which is really the only thing to do in that position when going in, if it's nothing will get you killed going in and he's dead will also like they got killed anyway (laughs) (laughs) i don't don't know know if they did but yes that's that's hilarious well at least in the movie they got killed anyway or did they 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 show them getting taken away or like they they got chased down and the one guy like got shot oh okay you're right you're right so the 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 blue caps the pre-kgb right were there and like they they chased them down and and they shot them, so it's kind of like, uh, yeah. I guess the most likely thing is that we would just stand here and assume everything's all right because if it's not all right, we're dead anyway. Yeah, and I think even the members of his cabinet had were reluctant to go in the next morning because of the same reason, basically. So the the character of Beria is fascinating to me because I knew nothing of him. And that's why one of my <laughs> for a reason. Yeah, it was. It, it, that's one of my favorite lines in the movie is towards the end when Steve Buscemi's like Buscemi. It's Buscemi. Is that Italian? I mean, of course he's fucking Italian. He's Southern Italian. <laughs> on top of it, I just can't. You can butcher Russian names all you want. You're not butchering Steve Buscemi's name. Buscemi. There you go. <laughs> Steve Buscemi. You got it. See, Yay. I'm turning Liam into an Italian one episode at a time. That. Fragile. <laughs> it must be Italian. So Steve Buscemi has that line at the end where it's like, I will bury you in history. 
And I was like, I love that line because I never fucking heard of this guy. And apparently he was kind of a big deal. He was. And then he was just disappeared. And not long after these incidents, he was just because I think it was from what I could tell. And I bet Dan's going to correct us on this in a minute here. From what I could tell from the film, at least, those two seem to be the main competitors for power mm-hmm. between Beria and Khrushchev. I mean, all these guys are kind of competing for sure. But it's interesting that Liam brings up the bury you in history uh, line because what actually happened to Beria, no pun intended, uh, mm-hmm. is kind of that he was actually excised from history. So he had appeared in volume five of the Great Soviet Encyclopedia, published in 1950. In January 1954, the month after Beria's execution, because he was tried for, I forget, treason and eventually executed. And pedophilia. And- yeah. No, no, no. They weren't going to admit that any part. of that. No, 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 no. The pedophilia, dead bodies in his walls, which we'll get to, that was all fine. It was just, yeah, just the political infighting that caused his execution. Subscribers to the encyclopedia were instructed to remove the entry on Beria with a knife or razor blade and replace it with four pages of new information and photographs on the Bering Sea. So he quite literally got cut out of history. Wow. That's amazing. That character was fantastic, honestly. Who was the actor who played him? Simon Russell Beale. He also looked a lot like the real Dick Cheney a little bit. Kind of yeah. shorter and fatter, but... Short, fat Dick Cheney. Yeah, short, fat Dick Cheney. That's really saying something. <laughs> so this is Ali Pitts actually references Liam in this. Simon Russell Beale, he must be British. He is, yes. If he's not, his name is. He's played Napoleon several times, uh, once on screen and once in a radio series called Napoleon, the Man and the Myths. And Ali asks Liam, or he says, Liam, I must admit, I don't know whether he made as good a Napoleon as Rod Steiger. Do you have any idea what he's talking about? Because I sure don't. Fucking Rod Steiger, man. Steiger. Man. No, so Rod Steiger, uh, what Ali is referencing, is uh, on Fright Pub we just did the Amityville horror. And I went on a drunken, what's the opposite of a tirade ramble. I wrote like a, a, an impromptu love poem to Rod Steiger, apparently like just like Rod Steiger, who was just a, a fantastic actor who was in uh, at least two best picture winners off the top of my head. He was the younger brother in on the waterfront or the, mm. the, the older brother, I think. Uh, the the one who was supposed to look out for him, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little. And he was also the the sheriff in in the heat of the night with Sidney Poitier. Oh yes, okay. He was in the January Man, which I love, and he was the the best and one of the only good parts of the Amityville Horror. Fantastic actor, and he always brings his A game. So thank you, Ali, for for the kudos to to Rod Steiger. So did you see Rod Steiger's Napoleon? I did not. I have to find this now. Put him on the list. But yeah, so Simon Russell Beale as Beria is so goddamn charismatic. And so creepy at the same time. Yes. Like he, like this guy, and if if the real Beria is anything, like a fraction as charismatic as this guy is in this role, he is absolutely a terrifying force to be reckoned with. I don't know about the charisma, but in terms of being terrifying he was definitely that he but like he is like how he his mind works and the light in his eyes when he is plotting and when he knows something about somebody 
you know, you, you referenced uh, Hans Landa before in our, our Argo mm-hmm. episode. And it's, he, this is a guy who just loves to play with his food before he eats it. You know, it's, it's so much fun to watch him in this role that like, I don't want to say that you root for him because he's such a piece of shit, but like, it's impossible not to be captivated by him and see him as, as the power player in this movie. And I don't know. I got the kind of the, the impression that like Khrushchev was not the one that everybody thought would be next up. Like the, at least in this movie, it seemed like his handling of Beria uh, is kind of what put him into that position. Cause even uh, Stalin's daughter says, you know, I never thought it would be you. And when he's plotting in the woods, well, it's like, how can you plot and run at the same time? Love that line. You know, he's talking to the, the, I, I who was he talking to there? I can't remember. One of one of the many mustached. Kaganovich. Kaganovich. And he's telling him, he's like, you know, it's, it's gotta be you is the next one to, to take his place. And it's really difficult to tell if that is sincere or if he's bullshitting him. Or if it's just, it has to be you because you're in the strongest position and you're not Beria. Right. Like, I don't know if it's pragmatic or if it's manipulative, but you don't hear him say that to like anybody else. No, you got to pick a side and run with it. And that time. Yeah. And I think the general consensus, like I said, I don't know about his charisma, but in terms of being a terrifying human and his actions being reprehensible, Beria's Moscow residence later on became the Tunisian embassy. And during renovations of the property, multiple human remains were discovered, almost oh certainly God. women who had been abducted so that Beria could rape and murder them. So the scene you see with the girl, that was definitely a regular event. In fact, I think if the girl being handed back off to her parents later is one of the ones that probably got lucky because this sounds this guy sounds like a serial rapist slash serial killer, literally, who was in the Russian or the in the uh, Soviet government, which is pretty insane. Although I will say, and we had a lot of research on this, and thank you again for everyone who did it. We're like barely going to scratch the surface because it's a lot. But I got to give Dave some kind of prize, at least anecdotally, because he has... The best quote out of all the research, and it's related to Beria, Zhukov ended up winning the Eastern Front for Russia. Kicked in Hitler's door, basically. Exactly. You can kind of look at it that way. He was definitely the face of the Russian army at that point and supreme commander, etc. He was also the first commander of the Soviet occupation zone in East Berlin and, and East Germany. And in a comment about Beria... He was quoted as saying, I fuck Germany. I think I can take a flesh lump in a fucking waistcoat. <laughs> that was his comment on Beria. <laughs> I know that part of my role on this podcast is to mispronounce names of everything. Everything that I read it phonetically most of the time. Let's just let's just say that uh, I I blame it on my hometown. Yeah, you're applying your Pittsburgh sensibilities. Exactly, you gotta you gotta bring the Inzer uh, a little bit every once in a while just to keep <laughs> it real. I mean, you're you're not gonna get a different version of me. However, in my senior year of high school, there was a Russian foreign exchange student who I was head over heels in love with, <laughs> and to try to impress her, I actually memorized 
how to pronounce her name. And I did it so well that like all these years later, I still know it. And it is Ekaterina Alexandrovna Georgievskaya. Wow. That's a name. It was. Do you know your wife's middle name? No. <laughs> that was my foray into proper pronunciation. And uh, I, I haven't tried it since. So I saw this movie. I don't remember how you said it made like 44 million. 24. 24 million. At least 50 of those dollars are mine. Bare minimum. Because I saw this movie multiple times in the theater. I think I saw it twice down in Miami because I liked it so much. And then when I came home from the business trip, Tina and I had a date night. And I took my fucking wife on a date dinner and a movie to see death of Stalin. Awesome. And everybody was like, does she want to see death of Stalin? I was like, I don't know if she wants to, but she's fucking gonna, and she's going to be glad she did. She was like, this is not exactly the romantic fair that I was hoping for. And I was like, but you're going to dig this movie. And she did. See, I, I would have been excited about it. I mean, I know, right? See, but I, I like weird movies. So my wife does not generally. So, it was a bit of a gamble, but uh, but it paid off. I think one of my favorite ones is the the scene where Steve Buscemi he goes and stands in front of that guy. He's like, mm-hmm. and he just totally shuts him down. He's like, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" It's like, "No, I'm just I'm just gonna do this." Is it Beria that he stands in front of? No, he stands in front of Jeffrey Tambor. That's right, Malenkov. Malenkov, who's the guy to be apparently. I feel like there's probably a lot of really interesting books about this period, but I bet none of them are very funny. <laughs> no, what you really need to do is you just need to get drunk with Dave. Oh, and he'll go through it for and me. And he'll tell you the entire history. You might not remember it by the end because he often insists that you keep up with him, but... I can keep up with a lot. <laughs> there's so much good comedy in this, and because I always have to point them out whenever I see them, terrific Lotsy. With mm. the puddle of piss. You know, you always have to point out a good Lotsy when you see one. Uh, by uh, A joke gets funnier by repeating it. And it, it's it's not often well done, but I think the the puddle of piss that everybody keeps kneeling in is is so perfectly done. And it's also like, that's a really good summary of this movie. If you were like going to distill this movie down into like, what is this movie like? It's the fact that you don't often think about like when you die losing control of all of your faculties and you just like your, your bowels and your bladder just release. And a lot of movies don't include that kind of detail. This movie does. And then it makes everybody kneel in it. I thought I remembered a Lotsi being a, a threefer, but is it just three or more times? Is that it's what? so a three is usually the, when you do it three times, it's a Lotsi. You can, sometimes you get a four, a fourfer. This movie might have like five or six right. piss kneels. And you're right. It is funny every time. Every single time. <laughs> every time. <laughs> it's so good. You know what terrible people these guys generally are. So every time you just can't help it. I just, every time it happens, I just chuckle like, mm, you deserve it. Not only that, but it, every single time it breaks the facade where th- it's always them like, keening over this body and like being completely over the top and then they kneel and piss and they're like oh shit fuck god, god piss. Ugh, like gross. you know it's like 
it, and it like for a second they totally break character of this like you know oh oh woe was me right how could, right how could this happen oh the, like crying widow like act almost exactly like they're like they're hired keeners in an irish wake i i can't talk enough about this piss it's so funny but it does just like clearly illustrate all of their bullshit and like how fake they are and how scheming and conniving but also like how shallow they everything about it is just distilled into that one scene and i think it's brilliant yeah and there's so much poetic justice in where the facts converge with the comedy here we talked about a little bit you know the guards being reluctant to go in and check on stalin and then the rest of the cabinet members being reluctant to go in and check on him because they didn't want to wake him and you know etc And another one of these things that is sort of a self-inflicted wound by Stalin that may have likely exacerbated his death was the doctor's plot, as it's known. So the whole like discovery of Stalin sequence is pretty accurate. In reality, Beria and Malenkov were the first to check on Stalin after being notified by Khrushchev and Bluganin, who did not want to anger Stalin by checking themselves. So again, even these guys are running around like a circus, like, no, you go check. No, you go check. Beria's disdain for Stalin is historically accurate, as noted by Khrushchev right after he finally arrived. A doctor was not called for a full 12 hours uh, due to some of the reasons alluded to in the film. Fear of political ramifications for relying on doctors who were politically undesirable or practically incompetent. And for a cultural fear of acting without direction from the top, like we said. Now, the doctor's plot uh, referred to in the film was a campaign organized by Stalin, which saw a group of mainly Jewish doctors from the Moscow area be accused of conspiring to assassinate Stalin and other Soviet leaders. Many doctors, mostly Jewish and a few non-Jews, were arrested, tortured to confess, and imprisoned or shot. The campaign was to be followed up with an intended deportation of the Soviet Jewish population to the Gulag prison and work camp system. But Stalin's death ended the campaign and the Soviet government later ceased its execution and openly declared its falsehood. So kind of interestingly, some pretty widespread anti-Semitism crept into the story here, as well as the very practical problem that there just weren't any competent doctors left in Moscow, really. And so (laughs) there wasn't a very... What are our thoughts about getting a bad doctor? (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's such a great line. I mean, pulling these guys basically out of retirement and whatever is probably something that happened. I mean, then they represent this with, again, the doctor who's been retired, the young doctor who's inexperienced because all of the competent doctors had been kind of locked up at this point. It's also interesting to see the Soviet Union, the government later just admitting that it was all made up. Which is surprising. Usually, you see them as never admitting things like that. I'm always surprised when. It, well, it's it, it's this weird dynamic that is depicted in the film that is kind of reminiscent of the the course the country has taken in a lot of ways here in America is this redefining what is true, and there's a lot of like alternative facts, and it's now this way because we say it's this way. So I don't know. And again, I, I wasn't there. I haven't studied it, but I could just as easily see it being spun as the new truth is these doctors didn't do anything wrong. 
You know what right. I mean? Because there's a lot of that in the movie where it's like, no, nothing, nothing happened with the hockey team. There was no plane crash. What plane? This, the, <laughs> you know, uh, Soviet planes don't fail and Stalin's son does not fuck up when Stalin's son fucked up all the time and <laughs> killed the Soviet hockey team. Yeah. Hilariously, one of the most famous news outlets in the Soviet Union and in Russia starting in 1911 is the paper Pravda, which means truth in Russian. Mm. Mm. Interesting. But yeah, I mean, you have things like Beria getting literally cut out of the, the encyclopedia. Now you said that was an order that went out. Like, did they just put it on the news? Subscribers were instructed to, so I'm not sure exactly how, whether like, and KVD, you know, secret police people just showed up to their house and made them do it, or whether it just went out or what. So I think we would be remiss if we didn't bring up Stalin's children in here, um, who are played by Andrea Riceborough and Rupert Friend. Andrea Riceborough was having just like the year of awesome when she made this. Um, Mandy came out that year, for those of you who have seen it and enjoy it. And a bunch of other things that she did. But she is just so perfect in this role because she portrays the one who's very much caught up in it, but has almost no power. But she still has some kind of weird level of respect because, you know, it. they don't want to be seen. Stalin just died. We don't want to destroy her. And she has some influence but no real power yeah like she had like a the love of the people kind of thing and so whoever right. sort of like controlled her had that bargaining chip with the people it wasn't like a direct threat necessarily but it was if we can get her on our side then the people will follow was the vibe that i got anyway yeah yeah and then her brother vasily who's just a drunk idiot and throughout the whole thing just the whole thing. And, and Rupert Friend does a fabulous job portraying this hapless moron who is just kind of stumbling through life as a privileged <laughs> boy in a world, you know, where there, that kind of privilege was incredibly rare, where you could say whatever and do whatever and nobody would stop you because, you know, you're the dictator's kid. Right. I just really love that they throw that in there because it then you can see, you know, they come in about a third of the way through the movie and you can see that the movie has been building all of these political alliances and you hear a little rumblings of like, oh God, did somebody call Stalin's children? Oh no, 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 no. And then they show up and it just throws everything back into chaos again. And they have, to, <laughs> everyone has to like readjust how they're doing things. You know, Khrushchev is like, Okay, how do I convince her, convince her to join my side and keep Beria away from her? Because Beria immediately starts courting her favor. It adds such a good dimension to the story and gives us even more absurdity that also feels entirely too real. Like, it's like, oh, this is so weird and absurd that it feels true, which is a lot of this movie. Like, it takes the absurdity to a level that just feels accurate somehow. And again, I know almost nothing about this period in Russian history, so it could be totally wrong. But I love that they kept Stalin's kids in it because it really adds something. It really does. And there's there's so many great moments, especially with the doctors. 
yes. when we're when we're first int- introduced to Stalin's children, by and large, it's it, dealing with these wildly incompetent doctors that are like, "You're not even a person. You're a testicle, <laughs> and uh, you're mostly hair." Like just his <laughs> wild accusations about about these doctors, and really a lot of credit to Inuchi in the not only the writing and the directing. But also, I'm assuming, in just like working with the actors. So much of this movie is built on its rapid fire dialogue and the crosstalk and, you know, undercutting different lines and, and things like that. There's a lot of different types of comedic timing at play. But one that you don't normally think of is what you get when he tries to grab the gun away from the, from the guard and just in an absolutely futile gesture, trying to get this gun away and he cannot overpower the guard, but God love me keeps trying (laughs) for a really long time. The camera is just like on him silently struggling to get this gun and everybody just like folded hands, like in the background, just watching it and kind of not watching it. Like, it's embarrassing for him and it's embarrassing for everybody else to be there, but it's an excruciatingly long time that he's trying to get this gun. And the longer he doesn't get it, the funnier that scene becomes. And it's just like, not what you think of when you, when you immediately think of comedic timing, usually it's something sharp and and snappy, but this movie is good at all of those things. Yeah. Yeah, and it also illustrates the futility of what that person and the actor is going through. That it's like you have no real power here, but you're allowed to struggle. But yeah, I like that they they show that futility that both of these characters are feeling, and you see their stars almost fading on screen as they become less and less protected. And relevant to the society that they're in. One thing I think that we would be remiss yet again in in this episode is asking the the basic obvious question: Is this a war movie? Well, I would say that very similarly to Argo, we're talking about the Cold War. And we're talking about what governments are doing behind the scenes that are not necessarily military action, but are related to it and are related to the interior domestic relationships of these governments, as well as the exterior international relationships between these governments, which this doesn't get too much into. This sticks pretty domestically to what's going on internally in the Soviet Union during this period of sort of turmoil and readjustment. I think Katie really hit on it there where to see this opportunity for these people to rise to power after the fall of Stalin and for it to just be a backstabbing contest. And if you don't know the history, you don't know who's going to get sent to the gulag next, but it could be anybody. Anybody could be tried for treason, executed, etc. So yeah, I feel like this sets up a lot of the world stage in terms of what happened all the way up to, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. So it's definitely war film contextual. 
And I think that in conjunction with other films that we will do, it'll have been really good both for us and for the audience to have covered this period in Soviet history because it'll make a lot of other things make more sense. But yeah, it's hard to describe this directly as a war film. Yeah, it's like if you think about it, it is a story ultimately about it's it's about a military coup before yep. the next players actually get the crown. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean the the end of the film is is the coup that happens and that is some and then that has reverberating ramifications up until now and certainly huge ramifications on the political scene and with the cold war at the time also one of the more accurate depictions in the film the the button under the table connected to the room full of soldiers like that was a real thing so oh wow yeah the coup was actually depicted uh relatively accurately just hit the fucking button Yeah, I mean, and we should say that in real life, at least initially, Khrushchev rose to the top. And after Malenkov essentially succeeded Stalin for a while, although Khrushchev, after becoming the secretary, gave a very famous four-hour speech uh, called The Secret Speech at the 20th Congress of the Communist Party in the USSR. And he basically disclosed, partially disclosed the findings of a commission set up to reinvestigate sentences passed against party state officials during Stalin's rule. His rationale for doing this was not entirely altruistic. He reportedly said, if we don't tell the truth that the Congress will be forced to do so at some point in the future, and then we shan't be the speech makers, but the people under investigation. So he kind of broke out some of the Soviet Union secrets and spoke out publicly against Stalin in an effort to sort of deprogram people from this cult of personality, partially so they wouldn't be so attached to Stalin and would look more favorably towards him and anybody else that was trying to lead the country forward into sort of the modern world. But this helped instigate some of the anti-communist revolutions that then happened in Eastern Bloc countries that started to try and come over and come into NATO and into the Western world and also strengthened opposition against Khrushchev in places like Georgia, which were Stalin's home state, where it was considered sacrilege that he was like openly criticizing Stalin in public for four hours giving a speech. Yeah, it's kind of really interesting to see what happened after this. And Khrushchev was never killed or sent away in that way, but he did eventually get pulled from power and and was no longer the secretary and essentially was demoted. The speech is from 1954, and he did last in power for another 10 years until 1964, until he was essentially kind of forcibly retired and pushed out to a dacha in the, in the country. We we most famously know Khrushchev from his interactions with the U.S. government during the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Bay of Pigs, all the stuff that was going on with Cuba. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. the The movie ends in kind of a uh, an ominous tone for for Khrushchev. That like, if you don't know how he how he ended up, looks mighty bad for him because it ends. I like how it bookends it with uh, back at the theater and there's 
or the mm-hmm. back at the 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 concert hall, and there is the distinct difference that Khrushchev is is there as opposed to like demanding a recording of it later. So he's actually in the audience, but then it, you know, when it's giving the, the titles at the end where it says what happened after the events of the film, and then you have Brezhnev in the row behind him, kind of like looking smarmily and plottingly down at him makes it seem as though like that guy's about to eat his lunch. And I personally didn't know how, how Khrushchev ended up until, you know, just now that he got a nice little, house in the country in a apartment but yeah it seems like it took them a minute to wean themselves off of this but once stalin was gone and his influence faded there was a lot less executing and sending people to gulags and stuff just fewer killings it took a while again beria was executed and etc but uh yeah so it still happened but i think uh, less and less so oh, what's what did, what did he say in the film now we can turn the page or now we can turn the corner that's what it was. Yeah. Uh, speaking of endings, I loved the photo montage at the end where they just do this like typical Soviet censorship of the photos, you know, and are like covering mm-hmm. up people's oh, yeah. faces and disappearing people from photos. And that's something that you can find even as far back as the 30s and World War II. There's lots of lots of famous manipulated photographs that you can find. On all sides, but especially the Soviet Union did this uh, most famously. I can't remember if we've talked about this in an episode before. The really cool Berlin photo of after the Russians had won the Battle of Berlin and kind of the Eastern Front, the war on the Eastern Front had ended and they had gotten to Berlin. And I kind of see it as the parallel to the flag raising on Iwo Jima, which is also somewhat propagandistic in the sense that famously like that flag was really raised there but the famous photo was a second raising that they did for publicity both those flags are in the marine corps museum in quantico by the way they're pretty badass to behold anyways the picture i'm talking about which you can find very easily online is on top of some building in berlin and you have russian soldiers on top of it it's pretty high up and they're placing a soviet flag on top of the building and one of the soldiers in that flag raising has two watches on on his left wrist and it was among other things i think but most famously the main edit here was that they removed the extra watch because they didn't want soldiers to be known for looting which is obviously where that watch would have come from <laughs> so yeah but i mean we're talking there are really famous ones where entire people are disappeared not even necessarily because they became enemies of uh the government or anything but just because stalin didn't want him next to him or whatever or you know there's also ones with like mussolini has a very famous picture cuz he was such a pompous asshole and always kind of tr- you know always with a frown and his chin up trying to look like some mm-hmm. Roman general. And there's a very famous photo of him in full, like black fascist uniform and medals and everything on a horse. And he's looking all stoic. He might even be holding a saber. I can't remember. The original picture has a dude standing next to him, holding onto the reins of the horse. And that dude got <laughs> completely deleted from the photo in the actual propaganda photo, which is hilarious. So Can you imagine being Stalin's ex-girlfriend and him just like cropping you out of all the photos. And life. And your life. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're lucky, the photos is the only place you're getting cropped out of. 
Now it's time for the breakdown, where we ask, what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Dan, you go first this time. Yeah, you know, I really like this film. I liked it a lot more on my second viewing after reading some of the research and history, because I just understood the relationships a bit more. So I think that, kind of like Katie put it earlier, the film had two different target audiences. One were the history buffs who knew all this stuff and could both sort of revel in the accuracy of certain events and certain people's character and also kind of laugh at where they took liberties if they weren't going to be super pedantic about it. And then there's a more general audience that is just kind of there for the laughs and knows a few of these people from history, but doesn't really know the details, which again, I would have fallen into that latter audience on my first viewing and sort of the former on my second viewing. And so it felt like they hit their target in terms of trying to make a black satire. Although one of the articles I read that I shared with you guys, they were a bit more critical about, Yanucci's saying that he kind of missed the mark and essentially had more opportunities to really lean into the darkness of this time period and of these people and make it funnier by leaning into the dark comedy aspect. Made it sound like he kind of pulled some punches. And I'm not sure how true that is. I will say that when I think about Veep, uh, Veep is really hard hitting and just relentless. Like there are very few moments where it relaxes and you're not laughing your ass off. Like the whole thing is just joke after joke after joke. Again, like I said before, kind of like some of the best moments in Arrested Development. Or like Hot Shots. No. <laughs> not like Hot Shots at all. Death of Stalin could have been Hot Shots. So yeah, I, he's probably done better work in terms of writing comedy but i think for what it was going for the film was successful nobody has really attempted this particular job in this particular subject so i'll give him credit for being the first one to kind of take a stab at it i do really want to go back and read the graphic novel and see what the french take was on this perspective you know, they, they involve that writing team, I think, a little bit, but, you know. They did, yep. They are credited as co-writers on this film. Right. So there's like five or six people involved in all the writing here. And again, sometimes the jokes really land, like the piss puddle, uh, Lotsi. And sometimes it's like you have to know who Coco Chanel is and know that she's not a he to, like, you know, make sense <laughs> of that joke. Did Coco Chanel take a shit on your head? No, he did not. <laughs> no, he did not. <laughs> oh, that was so fucking good. So yeah, I, I liked it. It does feel like a maybe 80% successful job. Like I do feel like there was room to lean into the dark comedy a little bit more. But, you know, maybe when he was making it at the time, he was hoping that it wouldn't get banned in Russia. And that if he kind of kept it a little more in the middle that it would be more successful and and make more, you know, sell more tickets. So I, I really don't know. So yeah, I'm glad we watched it. I think that it is a nice light way to get to know these infamous characters that were part of the biggest moments in socialist Russia and, and the Soviet Republic. And then you can kind of Communist. see- Communist. 
Yeah, thank you. They're not socialists. <laughs> right. Well, it says they're socialist republic. No, no, they are the they are the communists. I know. Well, it says the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, but whatever. There's so many goddamn titles. Anyways, what later became Russia? But yeah, I think it's great for context, and I'm definitely really glad that we did it. So overall, I'm pretty satisfied with this film, and I think they pulled off what they were trying to do. Could have been better, but I enjoyed it. I I have to agree. I think a lot of the um the objective on uh on this one to me was to to give like a a crash course in early Soviet history or I guess middle Soviet history and and to really maybe again like we've talked about with adaptations maybe uh, especially on true stories maybe not adhere to the letter of the facts but the the experience and like to really depict for the audience what it was like maybe a little bit more than exactly how it happened although this movie seems to have hit a lot of facts pretty pretty solidly as well to to do that by not only punching up the absurdity and leaning into the comedic moments of it but also to show some of the some of the darkness and how grim it really was i'm sure they could have gone way further with the darkness and i'm sure that that could have created some interesting opportunities for them to not only like juxtapose with the comedy but also to to revel in that that dark humor more but i really don't feel like that's what the movie's objective was i feel like would be talking about you know possibly something that was like a little more tarantino-esque in in that respect like not with the revisionist histories but just the the humor in the abject void of ultra violence yes and i don't think that was ianucci's intent so i think he hit the target pretty spot on i love this movie I think it's really entertaining and I wish it had. And again, I think a lot of it was Jeffrey Tambor's fall from grace at about the time that it was hitting theaters in America. I think that really hurt it. And I think that hurt it come awards season. I think it hurt it at the box office and you can't get this movie on Blu-ray in the U S. Oh, really? It does not exist. You can get like a Canadian copy. You can get it imported from other countries, but there's not like, you can't just like go on to bestbuy.com and like order a Blu-ray of it. Like they never produced it as a US. They never produced it. Uh, it came out as a DVD, but not as a Blu-ray. Oh, If gotcha, you wanted okay. it in high definition, you had to like get it as a, like a download from Amazon or something like that. You had to, to buy the download and now it's on Netflix. So it's, it's easily readily available, but I think it's kind of buried. Like you'll probably see it on your hidden gems, uh, sort of recommendations, but fantastic film, really, really well done, impeccably acted, especially like, and I can't talk about what's his, who's it's enough, you know, the one, the guy, Simon Russell Beale, Simon Russell Beale, fat Cheney, fat Cheney, slant Napoleon, (laughs) (laughs) but the, Uh, but yeah, no, like his performance in particular of all of them just really, really is gripping. And I think if they had delved more into the darkness, uh, throughout, 
that it really wouldn't have had the same punch with that. That ending scene is just chilling where they do the makeshift around a table in a shed and like read him his list of crimes and then just fucking shoot him in the head. Yeah. I mean, they could have easily carted him, you know, shuffled him off somewhere off screen, but they chose to show his execution uh, in the film. And then they just fucking burnt his fat ass body into ashes and then scattered him to the winds, which was amazing. Uh, That, that ending scene is just so chilling to me, but in like a really like engrossing way, it doesn't repulse. It pulls me in. And I don't know if they had leaned into the darkness earlier, if I would have followed them into that abyss, but I, I love everything about this movie. Katie. So I read a couple of interviews with Yanucci about this and he faced a lot of criticism from Russia and other areas about the lack of um, quote unquote accuracy. And he talks a lot about that. His objective and he, why he wanted to make this film was to depict what it felt like to be at the end of a totalitarian regime. And that this was very purposefully made as a fictional film. And his goal was not to represent what necessarily actually happened, but how people felt during what was going on. And I think he does that admirably from the very beginning where you see that concert hall director is like, oh God, I'm going to die if I don't get this recording to Stalin and we can't have nobody in the seats. There has to be clapping. And so he pulls in all of those Russian peasants, if you will. And it's so frantic and frenetic throughout the whole thing that, you know, when you're leader of 30 years who's led you through multiple horrific massacres and genocides and also through world war ii and world that's not even touching on world war ii right so he's this very complicated figure in the russian mindset and especially for those people who are trying to scramble to take over everything feels very disjointed at times and i think it works really really well to portray that and then it's also fucking hilarious because it it really enjoys reveling in that absurdity and then in the end scenes it really nails down the brutality that we've seen throughout this film that's kind of been hinted at or a little bit has been shown or something it's just full on display and we see these men who have been for most of the movie, uh, buffoons. It really shows how calculating and how ruthless they are to reach their goals. So it doesn't necessarily shy away and just be like, oh, we're a comedy. Well, that's fine. They really try to capture both the essence of the absurd and comedic nature of this kind of event with the reality of how deadly it was for so many people for me it hits for me it's perfectly on target i love this kind of comedy i'm a i'm a huge fan of british comedy and have been since i was about four when my dad showed me monty python for the first time (laughs) so that explains so fucking much i bet it does of that dry sense of humor and that kind of thing is just just totally my jam and i 
love this movie and I think it works really well for me. I can, again, I can see how it doesn't work for everyone and I can see how, you know, if you are looking for more realism and more of a depiction of what actually happened, like this isn't the movie for you. This is not about necessarily what happens after the death of Stalin. This is more of, for me, a general story of what happens when a totalitarian leader dies and the people who have been brainwashed and or brainwashing, controlling this population, um, struggling every day between that hair's breadth of life and death by pleasing or displeasing this capricious asshole and their experiences. Like it really captures that essence that I feel whenever I see something between this or the end of Gaddafi or anything like this, where you are experiencing a total and extreme regime change. So I think it works as that. And I, like I said, I really love it. I think it is definitely worth watching if you like that kind of dry humor and whether or not you know anything about the situation. All you really need to know going into it is that Stalin was terrible, terrible human being. And from that point forward, you're fine. And I think that is why Yanucci doesn't get into the minutiae and doesn't necessarily go with the completely accurate information because that takes too much time to really explain to people. That's too much nuance. And instead, he chooses to make something that people with knowledge and without knowledge can really enjoy and get the point of. And that's what I think is so great about it, because you can go in knowing nothing or knowing everything, and there's still something for you. So, And that's really, really hard to do, especially with a comedy. Comedy is one of the most difficult things to pull off, and this one feels like, you know, I watched it when it initially came out. Here we are three years later. I watched it again. I will definitely watch it again and again in the future. And I don't see that this will eventually become stale because of how well it's done. So I, I really like it. I think it's a great film. So what are we doing next? Next, we have the winner of our audience poll on Facebook. Everybody voted. If you're listening to this and you're not part of our Facebook group, you are missing out because we do periodic audience choice episodes every five, every fifth episode is an audience is an audience poll episode an audience choice. And this time handily, it was won by master and commander, the far side of the world directed by Peter Weir from 2003 starring Russell Crowe, Paul Bettany amongst myriad others. It's a good one. We're going to have fun talking about it. You guys seen this one before? I have. I haven't. I am very excited. I'm an OG Master and Commander fan. Like I saw it in the theaters when it came out and man, did I dig it. Yeah, I was, I think too young. I was like 20 and busy, like in the middle of joining the Marine Corps, had other shit going on. I did see it, but I remember like- It's got Marines in it. I know, but I was like bored and didn't appreciate it. And that was totally wrong of me. But now I am twice that age and I think I'm really going to like it. We had at least five researchers jump out to answer my email about it. And I only take the first three people. So we got some new people providing research and everyone was really excited. We got some people that have read the books. So that's going to be a great episode. Stay tuned for that. Thank you everyone for your support and for listening. And we are still 
just as excited about this project as the day we started. So if not more so. Now it's a known fun instead of like, I think this will be great. But now we know it's going to be great. So thank you, everybody who listens. We appreciate every single one of you. Except for you and you know who you are. (laughs) Damn it, Liam. Liam.